Welcome. You're listening to The Hill by Thieves Theater. I'm Gabrielle. And I'm Nick, and we're thieves. Well, not exactly thieves, but beginning in 1981, we called ourselves Thieves Theater, but we didn't just do theater. We did conceptual guerrilla art projects or what we call paratheatrical work. Our goal was to disrupt and alter the social and political status quo. Which means we like putting sticks in anthills and watching the ants scurry and adjust their new reality, their new status quo. Right. So last episode, we told you about the article in the New York Post that came out about four months um, before we got to the Hill. And its title was Squatter War Coming to Hill. And that turned out to be prescient in the sense that what the TP heralded in was a war for who gets to represent the Hill. And cameras, as Susan Sontag observed so astutely, were one of the weapons in that war, right? right. You want to just give yeah. that quote again yeah. for reference? Right. To photograph people was to violate them by seeing them as they never see themselves, by having knowledge of them that they can never have. It turns people into objects that can be symbolically possessed. Just as a camera is a sublimation of the gun, to photograph someone is a subliminal murder, a soft murder, appropriate for a sad and frightened time. Right. So that, of course, goes for film and video cameras as well. And we just <clears throat> want to give you a few examples of the skirmishes in this war <laughs> that we got into. Like, for example, uh, a Daily News reporter came up to do a, a rebuttal to this Post article. And... No one would give him the story, including you, of course, right? right? And um, Mo, and we'll talk about Mo and some of the other people we talk about later. He wasn't one of the initial residents. But he said, you, you would never let me into the news building if I showed up there, so you ain't coming up here either. <laughs> and the strict policy that everybody agreed to until they didn't <laughs> was no stories, nothing, unless you're willing to spend time, like the New Yorker writer Jim Lardner did, right? So you'll get no sound bites, you'll get no little quickie human interest stories for the six o'clock news from us, no media. And, you know, our thought was you're at one of the busiest intersections in the country, uh, where 80,000 people, 70,000 people, whatever the, the estimate was, come over that bridge every single day, let people discover and speculate and talk and make contact by themselves without any quick mediated, quote, explanations, right, from the press. So, yeah, a newspaper reporter, Michael Powell, came up. New York Newsday, he was. Oh, he was Newsday? Yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, he stopped by and he was wanting to get photos and a story because he got word that the Hill, along with Columbus Circle, uh, a lot of the homeless from Topton Square after they had moved were supposed to be swept. So the Hill and this Columbus Circle was supposed to be swept, right? And uh, this all supposedly came from the mayor's office on the homeless. And it did, actually. It did? Well, I mean... We got that, what, from Jim? Yeah, because Jim knew somebody who was going to be at that press conference at City Hall that day, and that person knew Michael Powell 
as a respected reporter and right and he had been at that news conference yeah um the article he came out with on the hill in it was uh suggesting that was going to happen right so that led into another skirmish which was this guy called Corey from the workers vanguard which was a marxist paper came up and he published a photo of the hill with the caption stating that it was next for removal thanks a lot Corey. yeah well yeah <laughs> Our Marxist comrades, right? Yeah. I mean, we, we felt he was on our side. I mean, he, he had made that photo for us. He had blown up that photo that we used in the photo exhibit. Yeah, that we talked about the last time where we switched out photos, uh, f you know, from uh, the exhibit that somebody had taken a picture of the teepee and we did the old switcheroo. Well, it was Corey who made the black and white version so, for us. Yeah, so he was a comrade, yeah. right? Uh, but uh, I, I talked to the, the editor of uh, the workers' vanguard, ask him where he got the information on the Hill. Yes. And uh, telling him how, how much we felt betrayed by it. I, I talked to him for a while, telling him the bottom line is that, that the information is wrong. And their source? There was Michael no source. Michael Powell, who said it may or may not be raised. Right, exactly. Right? Yeah, right. <laughs> so another stellar piece of journalism, and his defense was that the article's not going to have an impact anyway, that they have a small circulation. All true, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I suggested, well, if you're not going to take yourself seriously, then you're dangerous. Right. And you should fold. <laughs> <laughs> and then the next thing that, uh, another incident is that Channel New, 2 News came up with cameras, but Sammy chased them away with a stick. <laughs> But they still snuck a picture, and the guy said that they saw it that night on both Channel 7 and Channel 5. And they came, again, because they were clearing Columbus Circle and uh, were going to all the shanty towns, right? So anyway, lots of skirmishes. And the teepee in the shanty town was magnified and had a certain celebrity status at this point. And we felt we were at war. And the enemy being like almost society itself. You know, it's like that Janae quote said, uh, I am drawn to people in revolt because I myself have the need to call all of society into question. I love that quote. Right. And so the, the Hill was being represented in all these venues as a quote unquote homeless encampment. Instead of a, a community of residents, living an alternative lifestyle. And now, after we had been living up there for a while, we were integrated into that, I guess, lifestyle, that community. So we were living an alternative lifestyle. We were still artists, identifying ourselves as such, wearing our Thieves Theater, Thieves theater caps <laughs> with the logo on it. I mean, it was sort of an art, artist costume or something, I guess. But in other words, we were not quite thieves, and we were not quite theater. <laughs> Although you had been arrested as a thief at this point. <laughs> right. I had been put through the system, so I was a real thief with my fingerprints in the, in the record. Uh, we, we had categorized and uh, titled the previous episodes about the diverse lifestyles up there. Yes, our previous episodes were all titled the same way when we introduced you to the initial residents of the Hill, and that was? Uh, ascetics. Thieves, 
foragers and citizens, right? And we were taking on aspects of each of those lifestyles, just as some of our neighbors were integrating the artistic lifestyle. Absolutely, yes. Into their own. We were maybe altering the community a little bit, but for the most part, we were the ones assimilating. So for sure, counting coup, where we armed them with disposable cameras, was an art project. But it was also an articulation of how, they, how the community already felt about the ways outsiders were exploiting Exactly, because they were already throwing rocks. Right. We just, ch- we just changed their method right. to a more creative right. one. So they felt that the media and the lone gawkers were stealing pictures of them for their own use. Right. So, you know, like think of it as today, right? Everybody can take a selfie and publish it, quote unquote, and represent themselves. So now contrast this with a world where only an outside agency or person is able to publish a representation of you. You don't know who they are. Are they friend? Are they foe? Whatever that photo has captured of you, they can do with it what they want. Right. Again, the Sontag quote, right? It turns people into objects that can be symbolically possessed. Exactly. And... in any case, we wanted to create a, a space where there was unmediated contact, person to person. The quote from our mission statement, which is to build a bridge between us and them, right? Yes. So we, we're really deliberately facilitating a meeting. And that's the thing that we have second thoughts on now. Were they better off when it was just low-level huts hidden in the right. weeds. Is, right. Was this facilitation of face-to-face meetings and discussions, conversations, a good thing or not, right? Right. But, you know, it was amazing how many people actually came up to the Hill. Um, movies, commercials, music videos, architects, artists, scores of professional and amateur photographers, uh, students from various fields of study, Native Americans, tourists, uh, and some, when they got captured in our coup counting, right. <laughs> uh, you know, they it struck up conversations, and some of them were heated, um, but often they were fruitful. But in any case, it was people talking to each other. Uh, yeah, and not all media were, uh, big media were the enemy, right? No. For instance, several times Peter Jennings mm-hmm. came up and talked with us inside the teepee. At that time, he was the evening um, anchor of ABC's World News, and he was a strong supporter World of... World News Tonight, I think it was called, yeah. Right, whatever. It was one of the big three, and he was a supporter of the Coalition for the Homeless. I think he was on their board, but in any case, he donated and raised millions of dollars for them until he died in 2005. Yeah, it was his cause. And, you know, at the time, he was a a sort of a primary trusted news source until the Persian Gulf War, the first Persian Gulf War in 91, catapulted CNN past the, quote, big three. Well, I mean, he was still trusted. He was a trusted news source until the day he died. He was a trusted news (laughs) source. Or until he left. But uh, what I meant to say, is that until CNN, it was Dan Rather, Tom Brokaw, and Peter Jennings from the three major networks. Right. Those were the anchors that were sort of the go-to sources. Where everybody of got news. their news, yeah. right, right. 
he he told us he'd quit parading people uh, through through the teepee and was always apologizing. I tried to tell him it's okay, you know, that the teepee was here for well-attended, non-exploitive kind of uh, people to take an interest and explore. Right. Right. And um, one time he brought up his boss, which I guess was. Rune Arledge. Well, he can. He said, "This is my boss. Uh, boss, I want you." I can't. I couldn't remember the name. And I didn't know I didn't, what he looked like. Yeah, I mean. Yeah. But I, his boss was Rune Arledge. So yeah. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> we just assumed. Right. But whoever. Yeah. He brought up his boss. Another time, he brought up he brought up uh, Jessica Tandy and oh, Hugh yeah. Cronin. Right. <laughs> Hugh. What, what Hume a, Cronin. Jessica yes. Tandy and Hume Cronin, and yeah. that was really cute. <laughs> yeah. Well, Hume was really funny. I mean, he he came in with a pipe asking if he could smoke and uh you know i i asked him you're in the middle of a teepee with a fire going in the center yes you can smoke you yeah. <laughs> but i asked him if it was a peace pipe you know and he sort of looked at me like it was a serious question and then just for a second and then no i said no go ahead please teepee likes the smoke you know <laughs> especially tobacco smoke you know and uh he he looked like a little gnome or something, you know, sitting there and smoking his <laughs> pipe. And so we also had various school groups come up, uh, and we hosted them in the teepee, and we told them about the history of the landscape, Manhattan's history, uh, all the stuff that we research: Henry Hudson, the Whirlpools, Collect Pond, etc. This story that we had also told the residents, and that was being told over and over again to visitors, and we would later do it in the play as well. And one time, another little skirmish, right? One time, a, a junior high school group came up with their teachers, with their teacher, and we gave them a tour. But at the time, there was a police sergeant up there. He was taking pictures of uh, the garbage and the stolen electric, and oh, then right. he ran into the teacher and the students and was really condescending you know um did they think this was admirable what are they doing up here was the teacher thinking that this was uh, you know an, a, a proper thing to do but the teacher let one of his students talk right and the, <laughs> the student really held his own against the cop it right. was pretty amazing you know? Right, right. And, and, and then after that, while that was going on, HRA came up and, and joined in the fray. Yeah, right. So it was, it was quite a day. Uh, but in any case, you know, it was unmediated conversation, people talking to each other, which is what we wanted. And by the way, uh, HRA is the city's human resources administration, and everybody feared them. Because what usually happened is the city would send HRA first to try to put people into shelters, to convince them to go into shelters. And it was kind of a, a harbinger that encampments were going to be raised. So people really hated seeing HRA come up there. Right, right, because nobody wanted to go into a shelter. So th their visit was... Yeah, they wanted to stay in their home. Right. And, uh, you know, others came up just to satisfy their curiosity. I imagine it would take some chutzpah, right? Chutzpah. The chutzpah. <laughs> All right. <laughs> to walk into the shantytown up to a teepee, right? You're going through the shantytown up to a teepee. Most who braved the act were, were friendly and unassuming, stepping in. <laughs> but, uh, and some of them were very interesting. 
you know, especially the, the way they gave uh, their perspective from the outside, what they were seeing. Right, know? which is what we wanted, but, you know? Yeah. But now, even in their short visit, they had a firsthand knowledge of what was there. Yes, and they talked to the people as people. They became demystified. Right, and they, they had a personal story to tell instead of a secondhand truth about what was up there. Right? And who the people were. Right. And uh, so these visits were immediate, unmediated, right? right? Mm -hmm. And uh, the same thing we hope to facilitate, right? And, of course, the teepee itself, right from the time we put it up, was its own kind of media. Yeah. I mean, it was similar to a giant billboard. I mean, demanding the attention of all the occupants of the vehicles coming across, yes. everybody walking, 70,000 or whatever, that came across the Manhattan Bridge. Right. And in, in so many ways, the hill became a media magnet for any news venue that wanted to generate a story on homeless encampments, quote unquote, especially after Tompkins Square Park was raised. But the teepee was going to complicate all of this because it destroyed sort of the predetermined agenda that people, that media publications, I mean, came up to the hill with. Because a full-scale replica of a Lakota teepee was iconic. It was an iconic representation of home. Like any other home was a home. Right, a suburban home or anything, right? Right. Yeah. And uh, so this teepee is on the hill, the teepee on the hill, served as a kind of countermeasure to news venues attempting to classify the hill simply as homeless encampment. Yeah. The teepee disru disrupted the preconceptions readers or passerbys might have about what is homelessness. Okay, right. But what I meant to throw in before right. that was disrupt, fine, but for good or for bad is the question. What do you mean? Well, right. because, right, the teepee was like a billboard, meaning it was distracting. And do you remember that accident? No, uh, what? Okay, I mean, so there was the, a, a car accident at the hill right in front of it. And we were thinking that the teepee distracted the driver. It was a horrible accident. Uh, a woman came off the bridge and she ran into a parked car at the other side of the stoplight and her head went through the windshield. And you had seen this happen and you went there and thought that her eye might have been lost. And you asked somebody to call 911 and she asked you to stay with her and talk to her while help yeah. was being called. And that's what we were thinking at the time, you know, that you really do have to take responsibility for everything you do in this world. And sometimes your intentions are not the outcome. The, the outcome from your intentions is, is not what you want, and it can, right. it can be bad. Yeah. You don't remember that, huh? Well, I, I sort of remember it. I mean... But not really. I mean, there was a lot of violent things that happened on the Hill, right? And I, I have, I guess, like PTSD or something. I mean, I, that, or a kind of amnesia about it all. It doesn't, you right, know. Right, yeah. Well, me too. I mean, I guess, I guess it's a good thing that I kept the journal, which, of course, right. I've been thinking a lot. <laughs> all in all, 
yeah. we would never remember all of this, but, but but I had that in my journal, and you have to trust the fact that it's yeah. true. Um, but going through you know the records and and looking at all the violent incidents that happened, uh, you you forget some and you repress some. Yeah. But yeah. you know, then for example, another incident, the one with Ace. I think that one you probably do remember. Well, I remember again just flashes of it. I, I don't. I don't have a complete picture of it because it was traumatic again. Yeah, you know? yeah. I I remember it because it was so fucking scary. Um, and it also shows kind of the darker side again of sweet Larry and lovable Ace, which they were. But. They, they were potentially violent. They yeah. were potentially violent because, you know, Nick, they also grew up that way. You know, Ace was raised by a prostitute. Uh, he never knew his father. His mother regularly stabbed people. It, it, it becomes a way of dealing in the world that you get taught, like everybody else gets taught ways to behave, including how to treat women. And that it was the, you know, Ace and Larry... In any case, what happened was Ace got mad that Larry wouldn't front him some drugs. And they got into a scuffle. And then Larry tried to set Ace's hut on fire. He also responded, Larry then responded, by breaking a stick on Ace. But more than that, then he pulled a knife and he stabbed Ace in the neck. And as blood was bubbling out of the wound... People saw you and said, Nick, Nick, you have to do something. Come on, do something. And Slim, another person we'll talk about later, he was moaning. He's dead. Oh, my God, he's dead. He's dead. Um, and you yelled for somebody to call an ambulance. But then you put a rag on Ace's neck to try to stem the bleeding. And then Slim got upset because Ace had fallen on the threshold of his hut and he had drugs in that hut. So when people came to help Ace, he didn't want anybody going in the hut. And you said, fuck you, stop it. You're not going to move him. Get out of here right now. And finally an ambulance came and took Ace to the hospital. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, I sort of have amnesia on that. I mean, I don't remember any oh, of I it. Oh, I remember it really well yeah. because I was freaked out because, of course, Ace was HIV positive, and I told you to quickly wash your hands as though that was going to make a difference, but mostly I wanted to see if you had any open sores on your hands. And... Mm. You didn't. Right. Right. That was a scary time during AIDS. Yeah. Right. And so it, it all worked, you know, ended up okay, in, including Ace. Uh, the, the stab didn't hit his jugular, so he was in the hospital for a while. But then he came back. In fact, he came back mocking Slim, <laughs> laughing at him. <laughs> he said, I heard him, you know. I wasn't passed out. I was cracking up inside. He's dead. He's dead. He's dead, the little whiner. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Well, okay, and then there was the fight on the bridge, another violent incident. You Which remember one? that one? Which one? Where, where, where you lost your contact. Oh, yeah, but that that wasn't so much violent. I mean, I, I remember that because it I was... I do, too. Well, yeah, you were there. I mean, we were walking across Christie in a canal, and three guys, I guess one of them at least was drunk, 
and he just made a comment like I, I forget exactly what it was but something you you drug addicts you're you're worthless or some shit like that saying it to you, you and me as yeah. we're walking yeah. across and I just confronted him right and uh, and I don't know how I confronted him, not violently. No, but he got violent. He got violent, yeah. and we got into a fight, right? Just a fist fight. And, and luckily, the only thing that happened is both your contacts popped out of your Right, eyes. and so the fight w was, and everybody from... I, I laugh now. I remember everybody from the hill ran out when the fight happened. Yeah. I mean, basically, because it they was... They wanted to keep it fair. Yeah, That's three why. against... And so it went on for a little while. I mean, but it was still just a rough and tumble Stuffle. kind of thing, you know, nothing that you don't have when you're a kid or something. But it ended with the guy I just holding the guy down on the ground. I remember that and just yeah, that was I, the end of it. Yeah, right. and that was the end of it. But any case, me, so there were two kinds of wars going on at the time, right? The war for representation or self-representation, and then there was another war coming with the advent of drugs and violence and the th threats of violence that started to become a big part of the hill and we were have been alluding to that uh and looking back through the journal now we can actually pinpoint the exact date when the hill changed so in some ways this from here on out it's part two <laughs> of the teepee on the hill story and we at the time didn't think that it was gonna last, that the quote-unquote community on the hill wouldn't let it stand. But here's my journal entry from June 16th, 1991, so about seven months after we got there. All caps, a big change on the hill. A couple days ago, Jenny and the crippled girl Coco moved into Tito and brother Billy's hut and started selling bad news so coco moving into tito and brothers billy's hut means the hut's now for sale as real estate right for one thing absolutely right? and you know although there was some resistance at the beginning to the drugs being sold up there uh yeah because there was a hard and fast rule no selling you you got a cop elsewhere you can do drugs but you can't sell right but eventually they all acquiesced to the selling of drugs up there. And so the change happened pretty quickly. And everyone accepted a new re reality. We did as well. Well, I they guess. accepted it because it was easy. Let's face it. Well, it was easy for us, too. That's why I say we accepted it at one level, too. I mean, well, how was it easy for us? What do you mean? Well, I mean, I, just then when we look back now, I can see our own culpability in allowing it the darkness to descend, this dark fog to descend. I can see that we, what, what did we do to really stop it except encourage others to stop it? Right. Well. I mean, why are we still up here now? I mean, you know. And I wrote that. Right. <laughs> I wrote that I, in I know, the journal. But, I, I, don't know, I don't know why we're still up here. I wrote that a few times from right. here on out. Um, but okay, yeah, we, we accurate. But what I was trying to say is when you're using drugs, it's very easy just to say yes to rolling out of your hut and buying right where you live, right? Yeah. So that was just too hard to resist. Any case, now we had two wars going on, the, the, the drug war and the war for representation. And the question was how to fight back. 
Well, that's what I'm saying. We, how did we fight back? I mean, the way we did, well, almost instinctually, we brought up the uh, disposable cameras. We, you know, we were thinking that all these cameras up there and everybody taking pictures would counteract the drug sales that were going on at the Hill because we didn't think the dealers or even the, you know, the people buying the drugs would want themselves photographed. Right, because we weren't thinking. Yeah, until then, residents did drugs outside, you know? And so why? Why would you want to have cameras all around you right. while you're buying drugs? So, so a, a couple of weeks after that, on the 4th of July, I wrote in the journal, everything is very shaky on the Hill. What with the drugs and the city and just general chaos? It feels like the whole thing is going to collapse soon, hopefully not violently. Um, so yeah, we armed everyone with disposable cameras. And I remember, I remember Red saying... You guys are bonkers. <laughs> that was that was his reaction, and, and 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 we had said this before. Eddie said that'll never work. These disposable cameras are way too cheap. They're going to take tiny pictures <laughs> that won't be any good. Right. But besides the disposable cameras, we also bought um, uh, Polaroids for. Yeah. Yeah, and you were taking Polaroids of. Uh, the residents and making your uh, drawings, my drawings, on, your on, portraits, right? The that, portrait right. I made portraits on uh, mail bags in oil sticks, larger than life portraits of the residents. So you know those drawings were another kind of representation, and I mean they formed the lining of the teepee. Mm -hmm. I mean th this was the same way that um, we were thinking at the time, because uh, the Plains Indians used used the same thing. They used to put the story of the tribe on the inner line. Right, yeah. Or, you know, later on after all the land has been possessed and they were put on reservations, the, the inner lining then just did the family. But... Uh, right, so that, aside from them being the court cards of my tarot deck, it was a combination of that and wanting to tell the story of the tribe, our little tribe. Of the hill, there, right, 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 right. I mean, with the drawings, we wanted to reinforce and to remind people, both residents and visitors, that the hill was a community. Exactly. Or even a family. Right? Exactly. And it was at that time, okay, but also it, it's another form of representation, art, visual right. art, right? right? Um, but it was also during that time that we started thinking about making our own film. And again, the goal was a combination trying to combat the drug sales as well as to continue fighting the war for self-representation. So uh, we wanted it to be a film not about the residents, but by the residents. We had uh, several Super 8 cameras that we gave to people and asked them to film whenever they felt inspired, but we also needed a filmmaker who knew what he was doing and who had the equipment to make an actual film. And that's when we brought in John and Annie. John was a recent graduate of the NYU Film School and Annie's partner. Annie had been the lead actress in Trash the City and Death, the Fassbender play that we did. She played Roma B. She uh, was also later gonna be in the play that we were already at that point planning in the teepee. Yeah, and at this point, it was like mid-July, a couple of things happened that we were hopeful about that might have changed the tide of everything. Uh, a new cop came up. Yes. 
and announced that this was now his beat. He was talking to us as if we were, you know, citizens, as if he was on the beat of a neighborhood or something like that, and he was going to take care of things. And at the same time, the New Yorker article came right, out. Right, so we were really hopeful that this was going to be a way of fighting back. Well, it would add more scrutiny to the to hill. To the hill. Right. So we felt positive about going ahead with the film idea at that point. Yeah. And uh, we considered it to be more ammunition in our media to counter the drug sales that were going on. Yeah. As well as any kind of stories that were coming in. And in trying to solicit help and cl- clarify things in our own minds, maybe even funding, funding for the film, we wrote a proposal at that time. Yeah, because we needed to tell people what we wanted to do. And, and like you said, also clarify our own mind. So we sat down and wrote it. And here's just, it was long, but here's just a, a piece of it to give you an idea what we had in mind. The camera, as opposed to being pointed at the residents from the outside, is here used by the residents themselves as a subjective ally, a creative tool, and a weapon to fight for dignity, privacy, and self-representation. Even before the teepee's provocative presence, the growing focus on homelessness has drawn countless camera-wielding parties to the hill. Tourists, students, national and international media, etc., all trying to quote-unquote get the story. And by the way, homelessness was a huge topic at yeah. the time. In fact, David Dinkins ran on a platform of trying to clean up the homelessness problem. And it was front-page news, often in the New York Times and other news outlets. So to continue, The Hill has a large audience. What it lacks is its own voice. If the media are today's regulators of personal and cultural perceptions, then access to those media becomes crucial to combating and counterbalancing false, misleading, or just simply hearsay representation, which in the case of quote-unquote the homeless is too often cliched and designed to invoke, evoke negative emotions, pity, fear, anger, with the intent of furthering somebody else's agenda, like securing votes. David Diggins. Exactly. Altering real estate prices. That real estate guy, right? From the first article. Right. Uh, selling records and CDs, etc., and all of the film crews that, that came, came up and right. wanted the hill as a background, and that's a whole other story. It will ultimately be, uh, uh, no, the the last stand will empower the Hills residents by providing A, media access, B, a means for self-depiction, and C, a voice in the quote-unquote dialogue that is now going on without them. It will ultimately be a creative presentation by as opposed to a stultifying representation of a group of disenfranchised individuals. That was the proposal. proposal. But but we, I mean, we didn't realize that this was not going to be a war we were going to win. I mean, for one thing, the general chaos itself was not something we could control. And the other problem was the cops were corrupt. I mean, probably not the cop, the beat cop that he came up, but, you know, he wasn't going to be any Serpico. The blue line thing, the thin blue line line thing was going to He wasn't going to cross that. No, no. And so we never asked ourselves at the time why the drug dealers were perfectly okay. With, with us filming. Yeah. And uh, they, of course, they had nothing to fear from no, the cops. No, the really. cops were in the drug dealers' pockets. In fact, one time, you were filming through a hole in the teepee 
a cop on the take? Well, we shouldn't get to that now. I mean, that'll be later on. That should come when we start talking about Spencer, the drug dealer, who would soon be the new king of the hill. Right? Yes, Spencer's going to become very prominent from here on out. So corrupt cops, drug dealers, who were the enemies? Who were the allies? Hard to say. Maybe it was a case of, <laughs> I have seen the enemy and it is me. Yes. I mean, that's what we're, we're more thinking now, right? Yeah, I mean, that's now a realization we're coming to as we revisit the journal and narrate the story. We've seen our own. So in the next game. episode, we're going to dive deeper into this, our participation, even collusion in the slow downfall of the hill, including, and I'm sure some of you have been waiting for this. Right. Um, we'll talk about a tense visit from the two members of the American Indian movement that came to see us. And, uh, well, more precisely, two AIM members who came to size us up, basically. And uh, from there, we will talk directly to the term cultural appropriation and try to put it in both a contemporary and historic context. Yeah, um, also, you know, in the middle of all this upheaval, we drove down to Washington, D.C. to see a controversial Smithsonian exhibit, The West as America, it was called. And that exhibit had a large collection of paintings and, and photographs and other visual art that dated from 1820 to 1920, which depicted the American frontier. The goal of the curators was to reveal how artists during that period we're complicit, right. <laughs> like we were. So it was amazing and fortuitous that this was coming up at the same time that the, we were doing this and that Dances with Wolves had also come out, don't forget. The, the goal was Western expansion by the government, right? And artists were, what the, what the exhibit tried to show is how artists were complicit in furthering the government's cause. In other words, when they needed people to brave going west and settling the land, they depicted the Indians as noble and good people. And then when they wanted to take their land, they depicted them as savages and right. dangerous. And, that, and it was controversial, very controversial. Because of that. Because of that. Yeah, and I mean, we went down there with a number of our peers who had helped us uh, put the teepee up. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, it was interesting how in line we were and our art peers were at that time with the curators of the exhibit. I'm, I, I'm thinking right now of, um, what was his name, Christopher? Uh, Christoph Kohlhofer. Right, right. He was the art editor of the uh, East Village Eye. Mm -hmm. And we found a piece of art of his that really, eventually we, we talked to him and got to put, uh, to make a rubber stamp. Made a stamp. rubber stamp out of it and put it on the postcards that we had made. Right. Uh, that image, right, said both what the curators and we were trying to articulate. Exactly. So time. essentially the image was this. Go ahead. No, go you go ahead. <laughs> uh, you want to tell the image now? I, I don't know. We're going to tell it about it in the next episode. <laughs> okay, a tease, sorry. No, okay, let's talk about it. It's a beautiful Just image. Just briefly, we could talk about it again yeah, next episode. No, we don't have to talk about it again, it but was, it's a great, it, it was, we felt it 
encapsulated everything. What, yeah, what we were doing. Right. And we had the teepee on the front, and then on the back, we put this rubber stamp. Which was a head wearing a cowboy hat, but the front of the cowboy... Like a Marlboro Man. Marlboro head. Man. Right. And the, uh, what, what, what do you call the front the brim. part? The brim, thank you, of the cowboy hat was a hand, fingers, a hand, and it was very res- reminiscent of a Hitler salute. It was a Hitler salute. Yeah, there was a Hitler, the brim of the hat turned into a Hitler well, salute. Well, but it wasn't the entire arm, right. it was just the hand. Which is manifest destiny. Manifest destiny right. visualized. It was brilliant. Yeah, so... Any case, we'll <laughs> we'll get to that in the next episode. This whole um, cultural appropriation and artist complicity with mm, with what I don't know. <laughs> yeah, with uh, the powers that be, I guess. Yes, right. Thank you for listening to the Hill by Thieves Theater. And if you like what you're hearing, don't forget to like, subscribe, and ring the bell so that you know when our next episode is coming out. And check out our website at thiefstheater.org and follow us on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter at TP on the Hill. That's T I P I on the Hill. Thank you. Thanks. <laughs>